Good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumter, and today we're going to be talking with Josh Jarrett, who is the co-founder and CPO of Coru, the leader in predictive hiring. Hi, Josh. How are you? I am good this morning. How are you, John? I am fantastic. Uh, I assume you're in Seattle? I am. It is uh, dark and gray, and it will be like this till June. So uh, it's the usual morning here in Seattle. <laughs> well, at least you're not, you know, at, at home we're buried in smoke, and I have to be in Charleston this morning, which is which is shivering from the winter storm on the East Coast. So I think this is not a, this is not a great weather day anywhere. Would, would you right. take a, a couple of minutes and introduce yourself? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to, uh, and thanks for having me this morning. So my name is Josh Jarrett, as you said. I am the co-founder, chief product officer of Koru. So I've been doing that work for about five and a half years. Uh, I'd say you know, how I got here is the common thread has been, throughout my career, has been working in analytics to solve hard problems. And that's been a pretty random walk, everything from early natural language processing work in the early 2000s, looking at call center data. Two-thirds of all call center data is in free-form text, so trying to extract signal from that. To work with the National Park Service, I lived in national park units and did business planning and analytics uh, for them. And uh, immediately before Koru, I spent seven years at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where I helped start their higher education program area and led the innovation and technology team there. So we were looking at uh, things like what are the new signals of success, so working with folks like Angela Duckworth and her grit research, as well as starting to use predictive analytics. We could actually predict if a student was going to successfully pass a course with about 91% accuracy on day five of the semester. Uh, so uh, that's all. That's kind of been a, a, a theme throughout my career. And um, Bill and Melinda's mandate to us was to help get more low-income students, first-generation students, students of color to graduation from college. And I was really animated by the connection to workforce. So that's great to get, get a degree, but how are we really connecting to the right jobs and how are we helping employers find the right employees? And so left uh, Gates about five and a half years ago, tried to build on a lot of that research and predictive analytics capability to create Coru. So, so what does Koru do? So Koru helps our customers, who are typically large enterprise, fast-growing companies, helps those companies predict a job applicant's fit before they meet them. And what, what we mean by that and what we do is that we combine two important components to start to look for patterns in who we're uh, interviewing and who we're hiring. The first is that we deploy a 20-minute soft skills assessment as part of the interview process. We actually call it a pre-interview. We never use the word assessment. It turns out people don't like to be assessed. Um, but this yep. allows us to understand someone's soft skills like their, we call them the Cover 7 impact skills, grit, rigor, impact, teamwork, curiosity, ownership, and polish. So we're trying to fill in the blind spot of a candidate where we only see their resume or hard data about them, that where they went to school, do they work for Google, Facebook, or Microsoft last, uh, what was their GPA. We want to fill in the soft skills side of the data picture, if you will. And then the second thing we do is we overlay that with a predictive model, meaning we take all that data and we look for patterns of people who have been successful in the past and use that to 
bring candidates to the top of the funnel that might not have been uh, been at the top of the funnel otherwise. So we see that people have been successful are those who are gritty, good teammates, have done a rigorous major, had some leadership in college, and had at least one internship in uh, healthcare. That might be a start to a simplified version of a pattern that we're seeing in the data. And therefore, when candidates come in, candidates that share more of those attributes, experiences, and traits will rise to the top of the funnel and not just the, uh, the Ivy League kids with a 3.9 GPA uh, who, who pass through our arbitrary uh, screens that we oftentimes use today. So, so does your method uh, help address the diversity question? Is, is, it, is it a sort of a shortcut through the diversity puddle, or are you running into the what I'll call the Amazon phenomenon, which is that no matter how hard you try to scrape out the diversity problem, it persists. Yeah, it's a great question and, and one we should really dig into. I think in net-net, it's much better for diversity. It doesn't mean that we, we are very cautious and careful and thoughtful about some of the issues that, uh, that Amazon got uh, you know, uncovered. Um, but what's powerful that we've found is when you start to use uh, data points that don't carry bias, uh, we, you, can, you can not only tune towards success, let's find the people that are going to perform, that are going to retain, you can also find, uh, find those that increase the diversity. So let me give you an, an example. So uh, underrepresented minorities are about 31% of the U.S. population. If you just screen on, I went to a selective college, you reduce that to 11%. Or if you just screen on people have at least a 3.5 GPA in graduate college, you screen that down to 8%. So as soon as we start deciding, hey, let's go to these 12 target campuses and let's uh, use a 3.5 cutoff, we are introducing an incredible amount of bias. What we've done is we've validated each of the Cover 7 impact skills that, that to make sure they do not carry bias based on race, ethnicity, gender, et cetera. So if you start to screen for and, and feed data in, that, uh, that is less or not biased, um, by definition, the outputs will also be less, uh, less biased. So while, we, while I think some of our partners uh, uh, select us primarily for diversity, it's, off, it's often the number two issue. It might be efficiency plus diversity, or retention plus diversity, or performance plus diversity, and it's moving further and further up the important stack on, a, on almost a monthly basis. So, so that, that, that actually probably will tell you that I put the cart before the horse there. What's the benefit of predictive hiring? So, um, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a great thing. I think there are four uh, business outcomes that, uh, that, that people are trying to drive with predictive hiring, and it's not the exact same for everybody. Um, so those would be efficiency. So I'm getting just a huge number of applicants. I'm getting tens of thousands of applicants, and uh, it's not a problem that humans are even good at solving, and it's really expensive and time-consuming to you know, do stare at resumes that, are, that don't have the data I even need to make a decision. Uh, so efficiency is one. Diversity is the second. Uh, how, do I, how do I look for, I, I, I call it both the capital D and lowercase d diversity. It is looking for you know, how do I get more gender diversity in tech. But it's also, I want diversity of thinking. I want uh, people from different backgrounds. I want people who study different things in school. 
Uh, and, I, and it's really moved from a, a corporate social responsibility conversation to a strategic priority. Uh, we've, there's evidence now that, uh, that, that you know, more diversity is tied to better, um, better product, better business outcome, better sales, because my people look like who they're selling to. So diversity is a big one. Uh, the third would be performance. So I'm, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm, on a, I'm running a sales team. And I can't hit my numbers this quarter because uh, only 41% of the people I hire are hitting quota at three months. How can I make that go up? And then the last is retention. Uh, and so uh, we have one partner who uh, their three-month retentions at the three-month mark, uh, their turnover was 51%. So they were losing more than half the people they hired in, in, 30 day, in 90 days, and we've reduced that down to 13%. Uh, so I think that... Um, and those are the four big ones, efficiency, diversity, performance, and retention. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty impressive um, set of benefits. Do you get that with everybody? No. Um, and it actually gets a little bit to some of the, the realities of predictive hiring, which is the tools are in place to take data in to, and to take an outcome and to, and to build the, the model that says, well, these eight uh, data inputs seem to be most correlated with driving that particular output. It's, that, that's, a, that's a simplified way. It's not an easy job to do what I just described. It makes it exponentially harder when you have multiple outcomes. So when you say, I want to improve performance and retention, well, those are two different outcomes. The, the, the drivers of performance may not be the same drivers of retention, so you've made the problem harder. So we typically want to ask our customers to really prioritize which one of those is most important. That's the pivot point that we'll focus on. We'll look at the data and some of the other things. But one of the dangers or challenges when you start using data, uh, and we can talk about more about this later, is multiple sources of truth. So if you say, well, here's, the, here's our hiring profile. Okay, well, these are the attributes that are most associated with people that got hired, the people that retained, or the people that performed. Those are three different hiring profiles, if you will. And so uh, it's a little bit like if you sent your DNA to, uh, to three different places that are going to you know, tell you where your ancestry comes from. And when you, when you send it to one, you're really confident that I'm 23% Native American, that I'm 62% uh, Western European. But if you send it to three, three different services, now you have three different answers and you sort of start questioning what's the source of truth. So long-winded way of saying uh, focus is really important and knowing what's most important to the business before you overcomplicate your life. So that's, that's actually a really interesting rabbit hole that I want to run down a little bit. The, the idea that that you're going to get multiple answers, and you say multiple sources of truth, I'd say machines offer opinions and you're going to get multiple opinions. Um, I wonder if it isn't better to have multiple opinions um, in order to make a better decision. So rather than focus being the way that you uh, drive um, the output in a direction that you want, maybe having an array of opinions makes it a smarter decision. What do you think? Um, I generally think that's true, and I think that uh, um, we typically really talk about how to combine the machine opinion with the human judgment. 
And so that those two things are a counterbalance. And the data would support this, that 99% of the time, a machine plus a human will make a better decision than a machine alone or a human alone. Um, but if that becomes a challenging uh, uh, design challenge to, to figure out how to weave those, those information together. So I would argue that we already do have multiple sources of information. We have a bunch of intuition, both pattern recognition, their resume, somebody's uh, cover letter, someone's referral. And if we introduce a, a, a more objective data-driven data point into that, how do we weave that together and see if we can't make our decisions one step better? If we introduce three different data points or three different data models on top of the three different humanistic uh, attributes, uh, what we find realistically, well, I agree with what you're saying uh, conceptually, what we find practically is that our human brains get overloaded and we default back to, uh, you know, whatever our single heuristic is. It's, it's I'm overloaded, I'm just going to trust my gut on this one. So it's a balance of information overload and, and accuracy. So that's, that's, that's interesting to me because it seems likely that what's about to happen is that we're going to have multiple data models for each individual employee, right? We're going to have the predictive hiring data model. We're going to have the performance management data model. We're going to have the learning and development data model. We're going to have the plays well with other children in the sandbox data model. And, um, and they're all going to have different points of view about the person. Um, and and you, can, you can fairly easily imagine, or I can fairly easily imagine, 15. And yeah. they're, they're going to be more like a jury than like a judge. Um, and um, the business of understanding and navigating that array of opinion and figuring out validity and health of the underlying algorithm, I, th I think that's where we're headed, is lots of opinions from lots of machines. Um, and so, so I, I don't know that you've thought about this, but, but, but I'd be curious if you think that, that, that the idea of pushing towards a single answer is going to hold as we saturate with data models about everything. Um, no, I think I think you're, you described the end state really well, and I think that um, uh, I think sort of you know picking one and, and, and layering that onto our current processes is, is the kind of crawl walk run. But I think I would uh, I think it's a pretty astute observation to say that we're headed to that end game, or maybe it's still maybe it's, maybe that's still only just the walk stage um, where we have all those multiple models. Um, so I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is you know how are we preparing are uh, oftentimes very much frontline staff who are the ones that are, uh, you know, that are that are running the assembly line to be able to uh, interpret appropriately. Uh, you know, it's, a recruiter is what spend an average of one to two years on the job, and that we're going to have them processing. Uh, they're spending six seconds on a resume, and now we're going to have them process six data models at the same time. So I think the one issue is just the um, preparing ourselves to, to uh, run into that. I'd say the second thing that we've really learned, uh, in some cases, you know, the, the hard way, is no black boxes, is that you've got to be able to crack open the data model and tell the human why somebody got the score that they did. Because the score, score is it's just, a, it's just a sophisticated way of getting to a probability. 
And you've got to say, you've got to give people context so that they can apply their human judgment. Me telling you that you're looking to hire Josh, you're looking to hire me, um, I'm a 75. That doesn't help you make a better decision that's confusing, that's going to slow you down. I've just reduced the value. Uh, But if I say I'm 75 because I have these three attributes that you found to be really important, but I'm missing these two other important ones, you now have nuance and judgment uh, or at least context to be able to decide how to interpret that 75 with the 42, with the 98. And one other thing I... I, um, uh, the analogy that I think is useful here is Netflix. Right? Think about it when you're getting, looking at your Netflix feed and they're recommending different shows to you. Two things are interesting there. One is there are almost no numbers on the page. No one says, uh, you know, here's the new Dave Chappelle special, 75. Um, the numbers are in the background and the, the information is in the foreground. But you'll also note that they almost always give you context for why they're making that recommendation, right? Because you watched Jerry Seinfeld, I'm now recommending Dave Chappelle, right? Because you hired John last, last year and you said you love him, I'm now recommending Josh because they're, they're similar along these four attributes. Um, so I think where we're going is, is context and opening up the black box, but that runs counter to our need for efficiency and not having you know, every frontline person hold all the complexity of the planet in their head for six seconds making a choice. What do you so, think? What so do you I think? I just, po- I just sort of yeah. post two different, you know, two different extremes. <laughs> well, well, my sense is that, is that the, the risk is that um, um, we'll default to a machine because it gets confusing, right? That's the the thing that concerns me most going forward is that uh, because if I disagree with the machine, then I'm going to have to explain it to my boss, and the machine has all the data. So I'm at a disadvantage, and and I'm going to be predisposed to take the machine's word for it. That that strikes me as a, a very difficult puzzle, um, and. Um, uh, it seems to me that what we're headed towards is a rethinking of what good interface design is, uh, because what we're going to have to do is cause our people to consume multiple data sources without arriving at instantaneous conclusions. So instead of a crisp, intuitive interface, we're going to want a fuzzy interface that makes you think, forces you to think. And so that, that's where I think it goes. Yeah, yeah, we, we call this the UI of AI, right? Which is the user interface of artificial right. intelligence. Like how how do we how do we create the right way to engage with that information, um, and uh, and to step you through it in a way that unpacks it, that doesn't just you know, just leave it stating it uh, a fact. So one of the things we did is. Um, I mentioned that, you know, how do you open up the black box? Like, what are the drivers and how does this individual do on each of those drivers? Um, we made that a rollover. What I mean by that is you had to, you'd say, okay, Josh is 75. You had to roll over it and then a pop-up came up and explained why, okay, here are the six strongest attributes, red, yellow, or green on each of those attributes, start to unpack it. And we, we could have just put that right next to the score. And we did user testing and one of our recruiters said, no, no, I, I, I don't want it right there. Like, it's kind of overwhelming. I, need to, I want it to be discovery. 
I want to have to take a conscious action of rolling my mouse because we're trying to solve for efficiency. Put all the data right there. They got to make quick decisions. They're like, no, no, I want to get to know this candidate. And by having to take an action of rolling over and seeing the detail and start to engage with it, it was, it was the right way that he wanted his brain to step into all that richness. And so that's a very simple example of, of what I think you're getting at is these, these, these ways to appreciate the complexity and not just overwhelm people that they shut down. Yep, that's right. I'm going to take us over to a commercial really quickly and we'll pop right back on this. You're listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. Did you know 86% of career seekers would commit five years to an employer offering a student loan repayment benefit program? Even more amazing, only 4% of employers offer one. Benefit Ed makes it easy to introduce this in-demand benefit any time of year. Simple administration for you, simple sign-up for employees. You can help them pay down student loans or save for college. Compete for the best and build your dream team. Learn more at ubenefit.com slash hrx. That's y-o-u-benefit.com slash hrx. Thanks so much, Benefit Ed, for um, sponsoring this. So, so let's move. That was a good start into the ethics question set. Um, um, interface design as an ethics question, I think, is something that we'll probably talk about a lot. What do you think the big ethics issues are? Well, I, I mean, I'm glad that we're having these conversations, and I think they're really important. And I've got smart people like you are, are asking these questions, and they're ones that you know we take very seriously. As I mean, we our our core mission as an organization is to level the playing field so that people can access opportunity based on what they can do, not based on their background, right, where they went to school or who their last employer was. So if you have an aspiration to level the playing field. Uh, these are these are not just uh, uh, trivial or compliance issues. They're actually core to you know, who you are and what you're trying to do. Um, that said, I, I think I'm um, at, the, at the risk of being controversial. I think I'm a pragmatist, not a perfectionist uh, on these issues. Um, we sort of like to ask these ethical questions in a vacuum, as opposed to uh, the reality where we are today. So we're saying, hey, is, there, is that algorithm introducing a little bit of bias? And my point is, well, is it better than what we have today? And, uh, and so I really think that we ought to be um, asking these questions, particularly around bias and, and um, some of the, the subtlety that we, we um, you know, may be introducing into the context of, is it making our processes and our decisions better? Or as, a, as opposed to, is it not perfect? Um, and so I think uh, you know, we need to remember that kind of bias is, is all around us, that, that a lot of the terms that we love laud, laud on people, right, pattern recognition, experience, wisdom, judgment, that's shorthand for I introduce bias uh, into decisions. And so, um, and so I think my, my general sort of starting point for this is um, let's think about the system we're trying to improve and how might we make it better. Uh, as opposed to let's imagine a perfect world that doesn't exist and see if this is less than perfect. Oh, you, you know, I, I, I agree with you somewhat, but, but I, I will tell you that, that I have yet to see a clear
clear explanation of how bias operates in organizations. Right. So, so I don't think I don't think there is a reasonable explanation of how that phenomena actually happens. And so, when you don't have a reasonable explanation of how it happens, the claim that you're going to modify it somehow is uh, uh, vacuous. Right. And and so so it may put us in theoretical land, but but I I'm not clear that you can prove that bias is reduced because you take X action in the middle of a process that's surrounded by bias. Well, I, I don't know how you prove that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that, um, I mean, two thoughts on it. One is, you know, we like to track baseline, you know, before and then after implementing our solution. So, you know, are our slates of candidates coming forward for uh, for interviews more diverse than they were before? Are the hires more diverse than they were before? It's not a perfect measure, uh, but it's suggesting, well, here's our baseline, and are we moving it in the right direction? But I will tell you a, a story. I will not name the, the company, but it was a large professional services organization. They put out an RFP for assessment, predictive hiring, whatever you want to call it. We won the RFP, and the general counsel refused to let them go forward with the project because it would document the state of their bias. And said, I don't want right. this. I know our processes are biased. I don't want the data because we are exposed. So gathering the data and making a concerted effort to improve and reduce our bias is too great of a risk than maintaining our human bias system. So let's keep our processes as is. Right, and, and I think I think that that a kind of a, a common reaction. There's also. I hear echoes of the um, uh, the recent notion that we no longer needed affirmative action because because discrimination was cured, right? And and so there's this: who's making the judgment about whether or not there's bias, and can you use a population count to understand whether or not you've you've addressed bias in the system? Those are those are big questions that. That merits some exploration. I, I know the the people who are on the receiving the negative receiving end of bias often don't feel like they're served by um, the kinds of things that most of the intelligent tools industry is trying to to bring into the organization. Yeah, I, I think there's um, I think there's legitimate concern there, and I, I think that um, I mean, a couple of thoughts. I'd say that. Uh, uh, you know, we have the you're asking this question like, what's the measuring stick? It's really squishy. Like, we don't know what the what the where the bar is. I mean, we do have some guidelines. They're obviously very imperfect. Um, you know, from the EEOC and other places that at least put the parameters on. Um, you know, when you might know that bias is creeping in, and you might be over the line. And so, I you know, I'd start there as the uh, kind of the, the metrics and goals. Um, although they're again, you know, pretty broad brush, but they're at least a starting place of, of again, that kind of question of source of truth. Um, but I also think that, you know, what you're getting at too is, is the algorithm picking up a bias in our in our organization's processes, or is it picking up a bias in society? Right. And, and like the background radiation, like when we're looking for signals from the Big Bang, we're looking for background radiation. That's kind of what I think about uh, sometimes is the background signal. So if I'm hiring uh, for 
software developers, they are disproportionately men. It's not my process that makes them disproportionately men. It's a set of things in society that have, that have led us to that point. And so if the algorithm picks up a societal bias outside of my control, is its job to correct for that? Uh, or is its job to be neutral and only try and manage the processes from you know, when a candidate hits my front door and the biases that I may be introducing as a company? Does that even make sense? Oh, sure it does. No, I think, I think on some level that's exactly the question, right? Um, um, are we going to end up with um, intelligent tools that must be led by a human being? Not just processed, but, but um, we've, got, we've got this situation today and we want to achieve this situation tomorrow, and so we want our tool to take us there. Um, and so it's like putting putting automated machinery in place to move the ship in a specific direction. Or do we want to take a more or less a fair attitude and say the machine will get us where it gets us, right? And and I think that's that's um, exactly the adoption question for intelligent technology. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, I think that supervision is really important, and that that we we don't say we do AI, we do machine learning. We apply these algorithms. We have a data scientist look at it, run it through a bunch of data to, to look for any potential for adverse impact before we shift that model. So we're not letting the machines, uh, you know, off the leash. Um, I think for a long time, and nor should we. And I would also say that who you have doing the monitoring really matters. Uh, our, our lead data scientist for a project we're doing, we're starting to do more automated listening in the background as data comes in and be able to, to trigger when there's a better model available, requested to have some of our software developers work with him. So he's a white male, and he said, can I have a couple of these software developers work with me closely on that project? And I said, why? Well, it turns out that our entire software development team is women, including women of color. And he said, I, I don't know what my biases are. Um, and so if they're part of the project and process, they're going to help help us ship a better product. And I thought that was incredibly insightful of him and uh, acknowledging that he wasn't even sure what he was solving for, but by having the right voices in the room uh, was the, sort of the best insulation against that. Boy, we've, we've sort of blown through our time together, and that was an awesome stopping place. What a great story, Josh. Thank you. Um, would you take a moment and... Uh, reintroduce yourself and tell people how they might get a hold of you. Sure. So, again, this is Josh Jarrett, Chief Product Officer at Koru. We do predictive hiring for FIT. We combine soft skills assessment with predictive modeling to identify the best fit candidates and quickly get them into the organization. Uh, people can reach me at josh at joinkoru, J-O-I-N-K-O-R-U.com, and happy to talk more about any of these issues. They're all fun, fun issues. Thanks so much, Josh. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. We've been talking with Josh Jarrett, co-founder and CPO at Koru. Thanks again, Josh, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. Bye-bye now. Mm-hmm.